Coach Brad here. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about the Chasing Poker Greatness VIP newsletter. Hopping onto the VIP newsletter is the absolute best thing you can do to ensure this plucky little podcast keeps going indefinitely into the future. When you sign up, you'll get exclusive behind-the-scenes Chasing Poker Greatness content, access to the private Chasing Poker Greatness Slack community, notifications for product launches, entries into monthly free coaching giveaways, and much, much more. So if you're wondering what the absolute best thing you can do to support your favorite poker podcast, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash VIP and access the newsletter today. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash VIP. And now, back to the show. Poker's legendary champions. Next generation stars and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson, and today's guest on the podcast is Cash Game Destroyer of Worlds and Twitch streamer Jillian Epp. If you aren't familiar with Jillian's work, you should probably count your blessings as her format of choice is the one that's nearest and dearest to my own heart, Cash Games. And on the felt is probably not where you'd wish to encounter her. This conversation is especially meaningful to me as it made me reflect and meditate on some of my core beliefs about the world of poker. The first was my cynical gut response to the Bill Perkins Jungle Man fiasco, really just feeling apathetic about the whole deal. Even though I cannot change what my initial reaction was and I still find it hard to care more than a little bit, I genuinely wish I still had the rosy view of online poker and maybe human beings that I did when I was a younger man. That rosy view was that folks were generally honorable and would do the right thing even when other people weren't watching. Maybe that was naive and it's probably unlikely I'll get back there anytime soon, but I do wish I would have felt more outrage when these stories hit the wire than I did. The second perspective I've meditated on quite a bit since this conversation is whether or not I would want my young girls to be a part of the world of poker when they get older. I'm going to tell you straight away, I have seen and heard some really, really horrible things said to female dealers and poker players in my career. Stuff I'm ashamed to say I didn't take a stand against when they happened in real time. But Jillian's mostly positive experience navigating the world of live poker made me realize that maybe those moments I feel such shame about aren't as common as I once thought. And given all the bullshit women have to deal with in the corporate world, etc., maybe poker wouldn't be such a bad landing spot for my girls when it's all said and done. Anyway, enough about me. In today's episode, you'll learn how Jillian grew her bankroll straight away at the beginning of her poker career, why she loves the world of cash games more than tournaments, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the amazing Jillian Epp. Jillian, good morning. How you doing? Good morning. Very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Um, what time zone are you in right now? I'm Pacific, so I'm in Vancouver. So we're almost we're almost last. Yeah, because you just mentioned it's four thirty p.m. right now that you had just woken up. So I was like, you know, is it <laughs> sleeping till five p.m. Eastern Standard Time? What does that life look like? I mean, it's pretty typical poker life, right? Like getting up at one thirty—that's kind of early for me. Really? Wow. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I put my time in playing live cash game, a lot of times that involves overnight sessions. Mm-hmm. As time has gone on, I've wanted to be a normal functioning member of society. So I, I do enjoy going to sleep at a, a regular time. But there was a time when if I saw like 8 or 9 a.m., it was by a time, I mean a decade. It was because I had never gone to sleep. <laughs> That's the only reason why I would see that time. Yeah, I remember Vegas sessions where I never saw daylight. Like the only, what you're saying, the only time I saw daylight is walking back to my room after a long session. Yeah. But that's okay. I think it's good for the skin to not see da- daylight. That's what I tell myself. Yes. human being, day, Sunlight is overrated, I think, for all of humanity. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to start out by asking you, what's your story? Tell me the story about how you got involved in this card playing world? Well, unlike you, I, it was never my dream to be a professional poker player. Like I always thought those people were crazy. Oh no, I, that's not like me. That, that was my dream. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Like that wasn't my dream. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm totally, I always thought like, why would anyone do that professionally? But I just, um, I'm re- I've always really liked games and growing up I was very athletic and I was a figure skater and like in between when the Zamboni was on the ice we always played cards so like cards was just something that I was constantly doing when every break I had I played cards and then I discovered poker um probably in university and then I took some time off from university and went traveling in India of all places to study yoga and I was backpacking through India and my, my session, like the, the better you are at yoga, the earlier you started. So like the best people started at like 4.30, 5.30 in the morning. And my session was like at 8.30. I was one of the later ones, but then I had nothing to do for the rest of the day. And I started playing poker against the other foreigners, against the other travelers. And I was able to support myself by just making like a hundred dollars a day, but that was able in India, that was enough to live and like continue traveling and everything. So I played in India for a while, just against backpackers, went to China, played, did the same thing there, like stayed in a hostel and then just played, did yoga during the day. And then at night it just played poker against like other tourists. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember even in, in um, China having the debate about like whether a straight beat a flush, (laughs) (laughs) but I was still like good enough to make a hundred dollars because that's how bad the players were. Right. How how did these games like spontaneously start? Were you like carrying the cards in your pocket? Like, Oh, we got nothing to do. Let's play some cards guys. Ah." Yeah, exactly. I was a complete (laughs) hustler. I was like, I was sucked at poker, but yet I was a hustler. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We've got nothing to do. Let's play cards. Let's play this Texas Hold'em game that I've heard about. And yeah, let's play for money guys. (laughs) And yeah, I was actually like a staple, especially at my hostel in China 
Like I was just there every single night at night with the game out and it became a thing. Like people would come to the hostel to play and stuff. And I really didn't know what I was doing, but then I came back to Canada after that. Continued what year my, was this? Oh my gosh. I don't even know, but I've been playing full time for over 10 years. So like probably around 2005, 2004. Okay. And then I came back to Canada and completely, and went back to university and started dealing. So that's kind of where I really learned how to actually play the game in the casino, because I always say like, it would be so intimidating, especially as a female, if I hadn't had that experience of being a dealer, because going from a home game to a casino is so different. There's so many rules that you don't know about and everyone acts like they're the best in the world they're not but as a new player you don't know that and they're so intimidating and especially like especially as a female these guys are, I remember the first time playing in a casino and I thought oh my god these guys are all so good and they weren't and so I was more comfortable because I knew the rules after I dealt and then I continued my university but really my focus was just on poker I was taking economics and I remember like my year-end project was on how much money the casino is losing by having a poker table, like just financially, obviously as poker players, we know that that brings people into the casino, but just like putting a slot machine in is obviously way more, more advantageous, profitable yeah. for them. More plus EV. Right. Yeah. So basically my entire focus at university was still on poker. So, and then I was just traveling for poker so much that I eventually had to quit yoga and things teaching yoga and my other jobs to play full-time what year was that how did that how did that come about like was there a moment where you realized that you could play this game and fully support yourself well I was so in Vancouver to Vegas is a two and a half hour flight so for a long time I just commuted like every Thursday I flew down to Vegas and then I'd come back on Monday so I just grinded the whole weekend. And those are those sessions that I'm talking about that I never saw daylight. Like it was just go grind, play the weekend, come back. And then, and then that just got to the point that I was making enough. I was playing like a really tight, I, this was Bellagio days. And I was playing a very tight style. And I was playing 10-20, which really what is pro like the players are much better than me, but I was playing a style that I could easily make like a thousand dollars. That was always my goal. Like I just make a thousand dollars and quit a thousand dollars and quit. And at ten twenty, that's very easy to do. Yeah, it's half a buy-in. Yeah. Exactly. How'd you work your way up to playing ten twenty no limit? What did the progression look like? Did you start at one, two? How'd that happen? Yeah, I definitely didn't take a typical method. I started at one, two, and then I remember, and I could like, beat one, two, but I was again, playing a super tight style that I actually now think is definitely the right style to play specifically one, two, like out, out of the small blind, I wouldn't play ace jack off. Like at the small blind, I just had like such a tight range of like, I don't raise fold and ace jack wasn't even in there. Tommy Angelo had good hold on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I, like one day I was playing one, two, and then my whole table basically broke and went to two, five. And then I was like, well, it's the same players. The rake's exactly the same. Like, why am I staying here? And, and at this point, 
I wasn't even aware enough that it's it's a different game. It's a bit deeper. Yada yada yada. The place I I was just oblivious to that. I'm like it's the same players. The rake is the same. Like why don't I just move off? And I did. And I always bought in at that time. I bought in for five hundred dollars, which wasn't that much more than what I was buying in at one two. And there you could at our game you could buy up to up to fifteen hundred. So I was I was like short stacking it, but I was that type of style works when you're a beginner, right? Like it's very easy to play. I, when when you minimize a lot of mistakes. Yeah, the the less depth you have, the less mistakes you can make deeper in the decision tree. For sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think that makes a lot of sense. Like I, I always wonder when p- new beginners feel like they have to buy in deep. That wasn't the way I started. Well, it's not always like in a cash game setting, it's not about buying in deep. Sometimes they just run it up. And they sort of accidentally find themselves sitting with 400 big blinds and then getting involved in spots where they are just completely out of their element and really don't have a clear direction in a hand. But yeah, the, the, typically the, the more depth you can add, the more complexity you add, which is generally not very good for the newer players. Yeah, like if, so I was playing 500 at 2.5, which is 100 big lines which online it's kind of deep like that's pretty typical but live that's very shallow sure right to put into context when i was playing the 1020 no limit of commerce um a lot of the regs are playing 10k stacks on a regular basis some one reg specifically would buy in for 35k every single day regardless yeah. of <laughs> any depths uh so they, in an uncapped game, stacks can get very, very deep. So why live cash, by the way, versus online? Did you try online at all? Um, well, probably because I was a dealer, so I felt comfortable there. But honestly, I that's being at the poker table is where I most feel comfortable in my entire life. Like That's the time when I'm very confident and stuff. And I find online just really, really boring. If I didn't have the interaction with people, I can play online better actually when I'm streaming just because it gives me something else to, I don't know, talk about or something. I just get really bored playing online. Yeah. Engage, engage in. What's, how do you feel when you walk into a poker room and you're taking a seat at the table? Like what, what are the thoughts? How are you feeling in that moment? I still get nervous. Like I still have this little sense, but it's like an excited nervousness. But especially in a game that I don't, I'm new to. Like um, if I'm in a, uh, when I when I'm here, and it's the same players. When I'm in Vancouver, and we have a five ten, and it's exactly the same players all the time, right? It's just like such a small amount of players that pool that we can draw from from that game. And there, it just kind of it feels like walking into my house. Like it doesn't feel that I don't get excited or anything but when I'm traveling and they're new players and it's a new environment I get that like nervous feeling that's exciting and yeah yeah I do too and always though with a nervous feeling when I sit down it's almost like a sense of calm like no matter how nervous I am even well actually just sitting down but when I get cards and then I get in a spot it's like everything else kind of just fades away and it's 
100% in my comfort zone. Live poker, I haven't experienced that very much over the last like five years because I haven't played a ton of live poker. But I just know that that's the feeling of being in my element. Like I feel when I walk into a poker room, this is where I'm born to exist and born to thrive. And I feel very, very confident. So I was just curious as to, you yeah, know. Yeah, no, exactly. I feel exactly the same way. Like I feel like most like myself when I'm sitting at a poker table. Yeah, it, I, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know to say it's, it's odd, but it's just, it, it is what it is. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the element, especially of my game to talk to people, to get to know people, to interact, to engage, I enjoy that. And I'm able to do it a lot better because I'm so comfortable in that, in that moment, right? Like you said, you know, when you first started dealing and you're sitting there and there's a lot of rules and it's easy to be nervous and there's this sort of tangible tension that's in the air around a poker game, like breaking through that and making it fun and making people laugh. And it is like a, such a pivotal part of the gig just to make it more enjoyable for everybody. Yeah, and I think that's something that you realize as a higher stakes player that a lot of the young, the lower stakes players don't realize. Like they still don't understand how important it is to have a friendly, great environment for everyone. Because that really poker is a game. Like we're doing it as a profession, but it's a game. And most of the players that want to play, it's because it's fun. So if it's not a fun environment. I think it just, I wrote an article about just saying hi when someone sits down, like just welcoming them to the table. And I remember someone commented like, oh, obviously a girl would talk about how important this was, but it's I mean, that's important. just, yeah, it, of course it's important. Like as a poker professional, you want people to come back to the casino to play against you, right? Like this is, this is the goal to create a fun atmosphere and beyond just the benefits of that as the professional also it's good for well-being and just enjoying your life in general is making a fun more casual atmosphere versus the cutthroat um and like you said higher stakes players typically get it it's the folks who are playing the one two game and the two five game that are especially guilty of number one thinking they know more than they actually know, which causes them to lash out at other folks. But yeah, it's uh poker is meant to be fun. And yeah. sometimes it's serious and cutthroat, but you can still have a good time while you're on the journey. Let's go back. Okay. So you, you kind of bumbled into two five yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> they just moved the stakes up and you're like, ah, okay, let's do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And then it's kind of the same thing, the next progression, because then I was going to Vegas on the weekends to play at Bellagio and the 510 had a 1500 max, which I think it still does. I'm not really sure. Um, and that's exactly the same max buy-in as my two five game. <laughs> so then eventually I'm like, well, I want to try the game that has the no max buy-in and that only option for that is 10, 20. So that was it. So <laughs> that, that was it. <laughs> and then when you're playing 10, 20, then they're like, well, let's play 10, 20, 40. And like, this is the manager. And then during the summer, it turned into 25, 50. And like, okay. I just generally go along with it. I'm like, whatever you guys want, let's do it. I'm not one of the people that's like, no, this is the stakes I'm supposed to be in. I don't think about that stuff. How, did 
it come to pass that you have a bankroll to withstand consistently moving up in stakes like this? Well, I think I started out with 10, like when I started playing, I had 10K. Uh-huh. And I did what I said at the 1020 where I just like 1K at a day, 1K a day. That's And at that time I was focused enough that I could play that and it didn't bother me if I got stuck a little or anything like that. I was just like, okay, I'm just making my 1K and then I'm leaving. And yeah, that's like one pot at 1020. And I realize now that I obviously missed a lot of opportunities. Like I wasn't probably value betting enough. I was like waiting for waiting for the spots that I was super confident in, but that was a way of developing my bankroll, right? Like it, depending on your bankroll does have to determine your, how you play if you're playing a stake above what you can. Sure. That's, that, that's always the operative question for the listener. Like if you're playing in a game and you think something is the right play, say you're playing 500 in a limit, you think something's the right play. And then you ask yourself, if I were playing 50 no limit, would I make the play that I know is right? And if the answer is yes, typically you're playing above your bankroll. Like this, this is a good indication that you're more risk averse based on the amount of money that you're, you're playing with. Um, so yeah, now my, my game has so much more variance versus before, but I'm also playing poker, obviously. What'd you do? You you made one K and then you just like to the pool. Uh, Oh, it was nighttime. So it was like, yeah, go to bed, go (laughs) shopping during the day. And yeah, but that's what everyone at the table knew me for. Like, they're just like, but it wasn't, I kind of thought that that was a negative thing. But the regs actually stayed away from me. Like you thought, you'd think they'd maybe pick on me, but that wasn't the case. Like they just trusted that I had value hands. And I remember I could, like I could get players to fold kings easily because of the style of poker that I was playing. And so when players are folding kings to you, when you show a little bit of aggression, it's pretty easy to make like half a buy-in. For sure. And you're playing this snug, nittier style. As you're evolving as a poker player, like this is an observation that I think a lot of nits don't see is that, oh, I can realize tons of fold equity in spots where other people can't simply Mm -hmm. because of my image. I'm going to use that to my advantage and maybe put myself in some more where I feel a little bit more uncomfortable, but I can make money in these spots over the, the long term. Like, how did that evolution in thinking take place? I think you're exactly right. That it's something that I learned really quickly was that if I three bet flops and remember it's 10, 20, so it's pretty deep. That gave me, people just seem to always fold to that. And like, we're talking 2005, 2006, around those years. Um, even now three betting flops so like bet getting raised and three bet that's not even that common so but it's more common now than it was back then and when I was doing it just players just uh, with my image they just always folded so whenever I was like in a difficult spot (laughs) there I was just overly aggressive because I had such a tight image 
as is. And yeah, that, that worked out for me. Yeah, I would say bet three bets are extremely underutilized, even in the online poker game today. Folks don't yeah. bet bet three bet enough. And you're very clever in that it does get a lot of respect. That what, what I've learned about poker over the years is that people shy away from being uncomfortable. And when you put them in an uncomfortable spot, they tend to side on being more risk averse. So they don't want to be involved because they don't know exactly how to proceed. Um, and what happens is that hinders their ability to grow as a poker player, right? Like if folks would start flatting your bet three bets and then seeing what's, you know, without the nuts, obviously, um, then they learn how to navigate. So basically a lot of poker is just finding these situations that make people feel uncomfortable the less you have to invest, the better, and just exploiting it over and over and over again. But yeah, that's uh, super clever. So you're making your 1K a day. What happens next? Like, what was the next step in your, your poker career? Yeah, so I was a regular in that Bellagio game for a long time, which meant that I couldn't really support, I couldn't have a career back home. Like I couldn't keep coming home and then trying to work. So I had to just quit to play full time. And then it just became clear to me that the games in Bellagio were good, but they're better when tournaments were on, right? So I started following the tournament circuit more and just playing the cash games rather than staying in Bellagio. Yeah. I realized the same thing. And actually I realized something kind of funny when I was in LA was that all of my friends would leave during WSOP. And I went to WSOP one time and I just kept thinking like, who's back in LA? Who's back in LA with all the people that have to work and can't just live in Vegas all summer. And that was when I had the thought, oh, I should be. I should just stay in LA when WSOP's going, and all all the regs are out of town, and the games will be really good. So for the live pros out there, this is how you have to think, right? Like, when are the games going to be the best, and how do I maximize opportunity in those spots? Yeah, and in a city in LA, that works because the games have enough people to run without the regs. Whereas, like here in Vancouver, the regs make up. A per, such a percentage of the bigger games that when the summer's on, they're not even going to run. So I have to go to Vegas. But the thing that's special about Vegas during the summer is as a higher stakes player getting to change tables. Cause normally that's not an option that I ever have, like whatever table I'm on. And I know lower stakes players are really into that. They're like, it's so important to find the right table and stuff. I, I've just never had that option. Like whatever game's running, that's the table I have to sit at. Right. There's very limited game selection when you have a very shallow player pool. Yeah, exactly. I, there's something in me too. Maybe it's pride. I'm not sure. I, I can't... I, this has been to my detriment and it's horrible poker strategy advice, but... At some point, I realized that I'm just not going to stand up. Like when a game gets really bad, I'm going to push through it. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to play. Typically, what I found is that the the players 
some players will leave some percentage if the game's not really good and then they get replaced by some worse players. So the game always improves sort of naturally. But um, I think it's, you know, I'm sure you've seen it a million times where your game's good built around one specific player, that player breaks and then the game just breaks like a bunch of people stand up. And I think like going back to just being respectful of human beings, like it doesn't have to be like that. Right. Like, Yeah. And what you were saying earlier about making people uncomfortable nowadays, I just so rarely get into that spot. So what I would consider a good game isn't necessarily what other people would consider. Like sometimes a good game is obviously when you have a whale giving you tons of money, but sometimes I enjoy poker so much. It's when I'm at a table, like I'm thinking of one specific player, he's like a five, 10 online reg. And when him and I are involved in pots live, they're just insane. Like both of us are just always trying to outplay each other. And the, the whole table is just like always takes a vaccine. They're like, how did that happen? Like I remember he value bet me with eights where the only hand he could beat was sevens. And he was correct. Like I paid him <laughs> off. And then the next session, I did the exact same thing to him with the exact same hand. Like the only hand I could beat was sevens. And he had sevens. And so the table thinks we're crazy. But I live for those situations now because it takes me out of the boredom of just doing the regular stuff. Yeah, for sure. And this endeavor is meant to be fun. It's meant to be enjoyed. And sometimes as counter to the end goal of collecting as much money as you possibly can, um, sometimes that you have fun playing against better players or just you have some dynamic with the people that you're playing against that makes it an enjoyable experience and at the end of the day half the battle is the experience aspect of it we're trying to maximize our experiences that we have with our fellow human beings yeah and you asked like how i got to where i was and that's one of the reasons is that i was normally watching and playing against players that were much better than me And so I got to learn very quickly from these players that were better than me because I wasn't a player that was like, okay, this game's too tough. I'm going to sit down. I just like sat there, played my style, but then watched what was going on at the table and learned a lot from them. Right. The information is freely available to everyone if you're willing to pay attention. That's That's a great thing about poker is like the things that folks do when it goes to showdown, they have to show. They have to show their work. So you get to see what they're doing. And then if you reverse engineer, try to figure out what their thought process is or was throughout the hand, it's a very easy way to grow as, as a poker player. And um, what I'm sensing is that you know you sort of check the ego at the door and are willing to learn from the people that you're playing against and grow. And I think that it's just so necessary to not be arrogant in where you're at and realize that there's just something to learn from all of your opponents. And if you take the time to focus on that, you grow and you become better yourself. Yeah, you're completely right. No matter their ability, you can learn something from them because you can learn the way that they think. And if you learn the way that they think, that's going to be advantageous no matter what. And even if they're not, if they're, what they're doing doesn't make sense, you get to learn that it doesn't make sense and that that's what they do. Right. People lose and they're very creative in in the methods and ways that they are losing poker players. And it differs from person to person. And 
when I had a Skype group with a bunch of students in there, a lot of times, you know, we would do sweat sessions, people would hang out, chat and talk. And I would tell my more advanced players, like sweat the worst players in the group, the less experienced players, if they're playing a similar stake to you. Because when you talk to these people, you under you start understanding how they think and how they think is not how you think. So when you're right. making decisions, like the curse of knowledge is a very real thing. I think it was Vanessa Selbst who said that the biggest mistake in her poker career has been assuming that everybody is capable of doing the same thing she's doing. And this, I can say firsthand experience, has cost me God only knows how much money by sort of putting myself as the, my opponent and saying, oh, this would be an amazing spot to bluff without realizing they're not capable of ever bluffing. Yeah, they're, they're never doing that. Exactly. So learning about your competition is, you know, it's an important part of the process. And we have so much ability to do that nowadays with Twitch and stuff too, right? Like we can watch players, beginning players, and they're explaining their thought process. Yeah, like it's not a secret. You know, it's, yeah. it's there for people to find if they're willing to do the work. Yeah. And uh, just Pareto principling it, like as a poker player, 80% of your profit comes from 20% of the people you play against. Therefore, makes a lot of sense to spend some time with those 20% and understand how they're approaching the game. And in any other sport, that would be so obvious. Like you see football players and basketball players like always reviewing the footage. But in poker, for some reason, people think it's all about them. It's just their game. Yeah, it's a solitary, you know, it's like a solitary venture. And maybe there's some negative stigma on poker that makes it harder for folks to talk about. I'm not sure. And egos probably have a lot to do with it. But it's not a coincidence that there are, you know, extremely, extremely profitable stables that are running in the online poker world that collaborate with each other on a daily basis that are taking millions and millions of dollars out of the, the poker economy every single year. Yeah. So you worked with Ivy. Tell me about that. How, how did the, the Phil Ivy thing come about? How did it originally come about? I remember I got a message saying, Phil Ivy wants to call you. Can I give you his number? can I give him your number? And I was like, oh, of course, like it's Phil Ivy. Obviously I'm going to answer that call. And he always changes his number, by the way. <laughs> like you can't call him back. He only has that number for a short period of time. It's just like so cool. But at the time I wasn't the biggest Ivy fan. Like I was a Negranu fan and I just thought Ivy like lacked personality. And then when I got to know him, then I thought he was the funniest person in the world and he was my hero. And I just really like him. He has a similar sense of humor to me, actually. Um, but he, yeah, I just had like the utmost respect for him. So the second that I got a call that he wanted to talk to me, I definitely answered it. And I was all on board to work with him in any capacity. The thing with Ivy, though, is his passion is poker. Like no matter what goes on, I remember he had an offer for to just to show up like it was a meet and greet and he was getting paid a hundred thousand dollars for just this meet and greet. And then he didn't show up because there was a poker game. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the, no matter what poker is always going to be the most important thing. So his venture with like online poker, his 
it wouldn't that's the reason it doesn't work because it's not going to be as his focus like you know how much work it is when you because you're playing poker and you're doing all these other things now it's if he insane. always puts poker first it doesn't work right right it doesn't and it, it, it really doesn't make sense for somebody like ivy anyway because his talent is poker and that's what his passion and his pursuit is so anything that distracts from that passion and pursuit is just going to be lesser on the totem pole of importance i would imagine yeah and that's exactly right it's not even about the money it's about playing the game sure you you don't become phil ivy by chasing money as a goal and that's not how you attain poker greatness and become the best poker player you can be it's about something else something deeper something more that really drives you on a daily basis to sit yourself in a little oval with a bunch of other players and and play this game yeah exactly um but what did it look like so you were a pro for ivy's online poker venture is that how it worked yeah so he created a software which i really wonder about what happened to that software um because he he designed the whole like it was a new platform and everything so he had it all built and he was going to have an online site at the time it was just play money with the goal of obviously when the u.s opens up and but he had very little to do with the actual running of the company because he was off playing poker. So whenever anything went wrong, he was like just shocked. And it was just a problem with different management because people kept on getting fired and like, and he wasn't like, they had no leadership because he, he wanted to do it. But again, like his passion was poker. And then this was also during the lawsuit. Like I, I was at his house when the lawsuit like got announced and he was sure he was going to win like he, he was com- he was so sure that he was going to win that so that was like that was a big strain on his mental capacity and everything as you can probably imagine still to this day yeah for sure I, is he even playing in vegas anymore like in uh like at the wsop because they'll Basically, they can take the money from him, right? If he wins, the yeah. But he showed up last year. Did he? Yeah, I don't know what happened, but yeah, because he won. Didn't he win a event or something? Like he won, or maybe he didn't win an event, but he definitely final tabled and he won a big prize pool. And that oh, and then a bunch of people. I think Tom Dwan was one of them. Said that they'd put him in. Right. It was so I don't really Jungle know Man was that. Jungle Man was one of them too. Okay. Um, but I thought that was before the judgment, but. I could be wrong about the timeline there. I just know it's a crappy situation. And for poker players in the space, this is life, right? This is, this is the world we live in. Nobody really, <laughs> the, the judicial system doesn't really have our back. Just look at Mike, Mike Postle, that whole situation. Same, same sort of deal. Yeah, I was very upset with the news, but not surprised. In fact, when they announced that they were going to be suing him, I, I actually tweeted out, like, does anyone know of any cases where a poker player has been charged or anything for cheating? And everyone's like, no, they've been put in jail for playing poker, but not for cheating at poker. 
Russ Hamilton stole like, I don't even know how much, like $70 million. It's like the greatest heist in the history. Like I can't think of any bigger heist than that. And he's like scot-free. Like everybody knows what he did and there's like zero punishment at all. It's really kind of crazy. Yeah, it's upsetting. The only thing that I think is a huge positive with the Mike Postle story is how the community came together, supported Veronica. And I think because we don't have legislation to support us, we have to be our own legislation. So we have to be on Twitter supporting people like her and like get because basically we convicted him right like Joe Ingram <laughs> went through all the hands like we did it we just aren't able to recoup the money right yeah which and unfortunately for I think some of the players in the game I don't know this 100% like the money does matter right like it would have been good to recoup the money obviously Postle's name and reputation and all that stuff is ruined forever it's just uh i i'm with you though i i didn't think it was i think it was an uphill battle i guess I'll, I'll say that with no smoking gun it's an uphill battle because when you accuse stones of being complicit and you don't have a name and you can't say exactly how they are being complicit that's that's a real problem in winning a case yeah and even more upset with Hostel, I'm more upset with stones. Like I play in a casino so that I feel comfortable, so that if something goes wrong, I'm taken care of. That's the reason I go to casinos. So if for them to not even acknowledge it, like I really think it's on stones. Oh, for sure. It is. They avoided their responsibility to take care of their players and to do the right thing. And it wasn't even over a lot of money to a no. casino. Like no. it's, it's not even a ton of money. Like the negative publicity that they've gotten over this whole thing has to be worth a lot more money than it would have been just to do the right thing and say like, something's messed up. Let's try to figure out how this is happening, investigate it, take action and say, we resolved this problem. I mean, how much better would that have been for the casino, for the players? It would have been amazing. Yeah, and that's what really surprises me about like, why did, that wasn't taken into account, especially everything that's going on with COVID right now. I know so many companies are so concerned with how they look to the general public. So why is something like this that you say, like, it's really not a lot of money to the casino. Why are they fighting it so strongly, I wonder? I don't know. I wish I knew the answer. I, I don't know the answer. I, I'm assuming it has to do with the management and the people that are in charge, but for the folks that still play or plan on playing at Stone's Casino, keep this in mind that they don't have your back. And if something happens, expect to get screwed and expect to have no recourse. Um, yeah, so exactly. So why are you playing there? That would be my question. Lack like, of I options. Don't, I don't go to home games because I don't want to get screwed. We've all been cheated. As poker players, we've all been cheated. And we just try to minimize the amount of cheating and one of the ways of doing that is by playing in a casino yeah i just i'm very uh jaded i guess when it comes to casinos when it comes to online poker operators doing what's in the best interest of the players i think that they fail time and time and time again mm -hmm. and at it really should not be 
the responsibility of the players in the community to self-police this kind of stuff. It should be the responsibility of the operators. And it drives me insane that they all fail in that responsibility. And I, I don't really know what the root cause of it is. I wish I did. Yeah, I don't understand it because, yeah, you would think that the negative publicity, maybe it is partly that we, as gamblers, we don't seem to care. Like, I know for years people have been like, we should need to boycott Venetian because how they're anti-online poker and stuff, but that doesn't work. I I know people that are called for boycotting and then they have a good tournament series and they're there. Yeah, it's, you know, I guess it's the value system of the poker community value system of the poker community first and foremost is money money and no matter what you say or what you do if the venetian can have a 300k tournament where they don't add any extra money to the prize pool and they can meet that guarantee that's basically them saying fuck you we're going to do what we want and we know that you're driven by money period and you're not going to stick it to us and it's sad. It makes me sad. I wish that there could be some sort of coalition. The players could band together so that we could set our own terms because we're leaving a lot on the table by just solely being driven by money and entering a tournament that we deem to be high value because of an overlay or whatever. Yeah. And like you say, there is the Rex that have no other place to play and that's the issue. We have these players that are doing it professional and they can, they can have a voice. But then what about the guy that just wants to go down on the weekend and play like three hands? And he doesn't really, he doesn't probably even know about this live poker stones thing. Sure. He doesn't even care. Right. And, and I mean, let's go back to incentives, right? When Stones Casino, if all the pros boycott Stones Casino, what happens? It makes it better for, for all the wrecks and then the pros want to get in there. Right. The game's really freaking good, and this creates an opportunity for the pros to play against all these wrecks. And so it's like this, uh, you know, cyclical process where casinos effectively can just do whatever they want and know that what's the worst that happens, right? Players are not going to stay away. They're going to keep coming regardless of how they're treated. Kind of crappy to me, but I guess it is what it is. Have you ever been cheated in a casino? I don't know. Yeah. Probably. Not that you know of. Yeah, probably, but not that you know of. Not that I know of specifically. I've been cheated in home games. I've been cheated in many various ways, just as far as like, I played in a home game one time where the person running the game, who, again, this, this still doesn't, the logic, it doesn't make sense to me, but the person running the game went, got drunk and was playing PLO and got into his chips and like reloaded. And like, I'm crushing and he reloads. We end up playing like a 12K pot. I bust him. I bust him again. He ends up owing about $9,000 when it was all said and done. And couldn't pay. Just like, couldn't pay me. He still owes me money to this day. And this was like seven or eight years ago. And just stuff like that, where people do things when you're not protected and sort of take advantage of the system. But what doesn't compute is like they're running games three days a week and they can't make 9K. (laughs) They have problems making 9K and rake at a home game. It never made sense to me. Do you think if you were someone else, you would get paid? If 
I were a scary human being, yeah, then I would for sure get paid. Yeah. Um, and that's a huge issue I have is I feel like I'm always the last one to get paid. Like, I'm not going to do anything. Like, I, I'm, I'm scared to even mention something on social media. Right. It's, again, you know, I guess we ought to do a better job of having each other's back. And at some point, like, when you, when you enter the world of home games that are underground poker games, these are just some of the things that you will have to deal with. A friend of mine who's probably more passive than me <laughs> he got taken. Uh, somebody owed him money for a long time and a mutual friend, I'll never forget this story, got a baseball bat, got my friend in a car and went to this person's house and like beat down their door at 2 a.m. and had the guy cowering in a corner in his tidy whities <laughs> with a bat <laughs> saying, you don't pay him back, I'm going to break your head. And my friend got paid back. So I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily good, but in a lot of these cases, that's what's necessary to get paid because people just aren't going to honor their debts. And even as a community, I don't think we do necessarily stand up for each other. I had a problem. I think it was last year and it was one of those ones where I was just being left on red. So like I sent the text and they just never responded. And so then eventually I went to social media and I didn't say the name or anything, but I said, this person... I like I have someone that owes me money and they're just leaving me on red. What do you think I should do? Some people are like, Oh, call them out, call them out. But some people are like, Oh, well, you don't really need the money right now. And like, maybe there's something going on in their life. So you just let it be. <laughs> no, call them out. Like yeah. the only way to, to gain ground in situations like that is to create pressure from some angle because they don't want pressure, right? That's the, they don't want their reputation ruined. They don't want their integrity attacked in a public way. So the only recourse is to just say something because a reasonable human being will come up with a plan to make it right. Like mm -hmm. no matter how much money it is, we can make a 18 month plan where it's easier for you to make the situation whole. When somebody leaves you on red, the plan is they're never going to make you whole. That is their plan. And they hope that they can get away with it and that you don't create any pressure. At least that's my, my perspective. Yeah. And in that story, I sent the tweet like without their name and I like send a screenshot of it and people's responses because <laughs> people, some people were really, really upset. Right. And what are the, I should call them out and stuff. And I got paid within like two weeks. Yeah. Shocking how that works. Yeah. Like why um, not just do the good thing to begin with? But I mean, it, like, we're incentive-driven creatures and you have to figure out a way that makes it negative incentive for them to uh, keep slow paying or not responding, right? I do have a positive story about that though. I was in Punta Cana, Dominican for like a tournament series, which I highly recommend if they ever have those again, because I think the tournament started at like 5 p.m. at night and it was only like five hours. So they're all half days. So you could enjoy the resort and it was all inclusive. But um, I had a, I had just cashed the tournament and I had a ton of money on me. And this guy's just sitting there, I remember, with his shirt like unbuttoned. And he calls me over. He's like, Jillian, come play. Come play. He wanted to play me heads up. Uh, and I was like, oh, I'm not really in the mood. But, but yeah, his shirt was open. He had tons of drinks on the table. He's like, come play <laughs> me heads up. So I come and like 
firsthand, I have jacks and we're heads up. And he just like opened shelves. <laughs> and this is cash, right? So like, okay, I felt him. The next hand, I had like tens in the open shoved. Okay. <laughs> I felt them. Um, I felt it in three ha- three times in like five hands. And then he asked if he could like borrow money. And it's not a person I know well, but then I saw someone that I knew that he knew. And I was like, hey, he wants to borrow money. And they're like, yeah, he's good for it. Well, um, I ended up giving him like four or five buy-ins. Meanwhile, we're playing heads up. So like the money is going towards me, but it's, I still feel like he owes me that money. And eventually when he got back to his home country, he sent me a message saying like, oh, I'm, this is my payment plan. I'm going to be sending you $500 a month. And it was going to take like years to get paid off, but okay. Well, obviously, eventually the payment stopped (laughs) and I thought I'm never going to get paid. And that friend of mine that had vouched for him asked me one time at the world series hey did you ever get paid and i said yeah no and he did whatever i don't know but like five years later i got paid in full wow he did the proverbial baseball bat um, (laughs) yeah exactly the the virtual method of the baseball bat yeah i don't want to know i don't know i want to (laughs) know what happened but but i couldn't believe it that was just like that felt like free money like i really didn't think i was ever and i wasn't going to call him out or anything like it was i almost kind of feel guilty because he was like hammered like when I got there his shirt was open he had drinks everywhere I almost feel like I maybe shouldn't have taken advantage of him in that state it is what it is at this point and it must it I know at least in my situation how did it feel knowing that you were getting free rolled like or feeling when you were not paid back that whole time that like yeah so if I win this pot I don't get paid and if I lose it I lose it. Yeah, no, it's not. It, it, I was so having fun at the beginning. And then as soon as that happened, it poker wasn't fun anymore. It was just, it was an extra level of stress. And yet I felt like, I honestly felt like I had to give him the money because I just felt it him multiple times and I felt guilty. Right. It's a lose, 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 lose situation, but at least you were made whole at the end yeah. of the day. Shocked. <laughs> All the times that somebody says, yeah, they're good for it. You can trust them at least in my experience, it's still questionable. Even in situations where somebody should be 100% trustworthy, they still find ways to slow slow pay you. I was owed money by a billionaire for many, many years. And it just doesn't make any logical or rational sense why they would do such a thing. It just happens. So again, if you're in the poker world, you have to protect yourself from all of these types of situations. Yeah. And you could say, oh, just don't lend money. But, and that's generally my thing, but like that situation where I just felt at this guy three times in a very short amount of time. And it's hard to get, we're in the Dominican. It was hard to get money out. I think he actually tried and like they had a cap on his card or something. Or, and I just, I honestly felt like it would be wrong not to. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally empathize, right? If you, you feel that way. And to be honest, in the moment, he probably has every intention of paying you back if he keeps mm-hmm. getting stacked. Um, it's just like, once you get removed from the situation, then you justify it in you know whatever way, or he justifies it in whatever way he does to slow pay. So it, it's just, it's a tough tightrope 
to walk and navigate. And if you're in this profession long enough, you will have these situations come up. And um, yeah, you just do the best you can, right? And try to learn from <laughs> learn from what happens. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, You'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. When it comes to women in poker, what are some ways do you think that poker can be made to improve the experience for female poker players? Because it's something that I think about a lot, especially in the live world. I have two young daughters, and the question I ask is, would I want them to be in the poker world? The answer is probably not. But I think that it's kind of silly to lock out half of the <laughs> potential poker players in the world. And so how, how, do we, how do we make the game more inclusive and just a better experience? Honestly, for me, I find that men almost stick up for me more because I'm a female. And I always thought it was a huge advantage to be a female. And then since talking to other players, other female players, like partly it's because of the way you look and your age and things that these guys are very willing to stand up for you. Um, If you were, if you looked a certain way, they're often not as willing to stand up for you. So I realized that I have like, a certain view that's not necessarily the way everyone else is treated. And one thing someone mentioned to me was they don't like playing. I don't play women's tournaments. They don't play any mixed tournaments because they don't like the table conversation. They're like, they're talking about things I'm not interested in, which is something that I never thought of. Cause like, I generally talk a lot at the table. I'm, I drive the conversation a lot. So even if they're talking about sports, which I know nothing about, because I feel so comfortable in that environment, I do make an effort and I enjoy talking that 
But I can definitely understand that if someone's like, well, they only talk about sports and sports betting and that's not what I like. But in the women's games, they talk about this. I, yeah, I don't know. Cause I feel like, well, that's kind of your fault. If you go out for dinner (laughs) and the conversation is something that you don't like, um, are you supposed to change it into a conversation that you like or I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I think, do you think some of it has to do with the fear of not being in your comfort zone as far as women entering the the poker space? Like you said, you were, you were nervous because you thought everybody knew a lot more and it was just a scary situation. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely, I, I, I know that everyone is nervous every time when they first play poker. But I do think that is is 100% amplified in an environment like that. Like the first time I played live, my parents had to drive me across the border because in my province it was 19 and I they drove me across the border to where it was 18 so I could play. And so my parents were there. Like my parents sat there while well, there was a glass and they sat there staring at me. And then I remember I won like $100 and I took them out for dinner. And they told me, oh, we were so nervous. There was just a whole room of men. You were the only woman. And I, we were just so scared for you. And I, I, re- I think it is 100% more intimidating for women. But how do you change that? Just welcoming them to the table, for example. Just like including them in the conversation. The women's events, they talk the entire time. One time my dad asked me while I was playing online a women's only tournament and he's like, How do you know it's women's only? Like it's online. And I'm like, Dad, look at the chat box. And the chat was going on. Like we were discussing this woman, her um baby daddy wanted to get back together with him, with her. So like everyone's like, Should I she wanted to know should I take her back should I take him back or what? And like we're having this discussion in the chat box in poker stars and that's what a woman's tournament environment is like like we're not talking about poker often guys like to talk about poker which i know you're probably against right like discussing I don't really, hands i don't really care like you don't care? from my opinion most of the people that are discussing poker at the poker table are not really giving out great information so it's never really affected me that much i don't like that it makes people uncomfortable like basically you're discussing poker to try to tell your opponent that they're they suck or that sure. you're better than them or something. Right. And anytime that's what it's about, anytime it's about making someone feel uncomfortable, I don't like it. So I always try to steer the conversation away from poker for that reason. But at women's tables, although there is like that, they're always like, oh, how could you three bet me there when you had like <laughs> seven, eight or something, right? Like they, they, they do talk that element, but a lot of the conversation and is just talking oh about my family and things like that, which I don't think men necessarily do in that environment. Yeah, it's a more seems like it's more social. It's more of a social environment with a lot of talking and stuff like that. Whereas men are very hardcore in their focus and just trying trying to win for the most part. We're talking about you know degen stories, like you said, sports and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't feel like I've experienced a lot of sexism, but I'm probably a little oblivious to it. But I was playing in Oklahoma, and that was the one time that I like 
came back to my room and this is only like two years ago. Like I've cried because of poker, the mean things that people said to me. And then I remember a pro saying to, to me, like, you can never cry because of poker. Like that's not allowed. And uh, yeah, so I stopped that, but this was only a few years ago, but I was almost at that point because we were playing, I don't know whether it was like five, 10, 20 or something, but we weren't very, we had five, 10, 20, 40, 80. And then we weren't even deep enough. So like the only strategy was to shove all in and I had the table covered. So like, I was just shoving so much preflop and the players just get, were getting so mad at me. And at that point I didn't realize that there, cause I don't play home games. I guess in home games, you kind of have to allow that sometimes like that's part of the environment but in a casino I'm just gonna like jump on that opportunity that there's all this dead money in the pot right now I've never experienced such a thing at a home game um really yeah not me personally because I'm I guess I know my rights as a poker player and I am like this is my money and if I want to shove every hand then I'll shove every hand this is I can really get invited back I don't know. I don't know if I'll get invited. I've never not gotten invited back okay. to, to any game. So I guess that may, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I've never seen anybody get in trouble for like shoving too much preflop or being too aggressive. Like I've never seen anybody blackballed. Okay. That's interesting. Cause yeah, I, it was explained to me that like in these home games, like w- the players are all wrecks and we just, they want to see a lot of flops. So we don't want to see a lot of pre-flop aggression. And if you do, you will not be invited back. Yeah. Never experienced anything like that, but maybe people are just getting thinner skinned as poker goes along. Yeah. Um, but I totally understand it. Like if he runs the game and he wants his game to be like that and his players don't like me not being able to see a flop, then that girl, she's not invited. Huh? <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. And I think like if that's the case and that's the case, then I, there are many places to play poker on any given night. So just find another spot. Yeah. But they get, they got mad. Somebody said something to you. So in the Oklahoma game, they just every time I raised, they just like lost it on me. And it's like, it was a whole team of them. It was four of them, like all getting up, up on me. And normally when I've been in any type of environment like that, someone at the table has stood up for me and said, yeah, you can't talk to her like that. Or the dealer has said something, but in this environment, they didn't. And I'm the out of towner. So I don't know if they were all locals. Like it could have been that, like, obviously as a dealer, you don't want to upset your locals. And I eventually did leave. Like it got to the point that financially I should have been staying because the game was just so ridiculous. The players just were making so many mistakes. Like they were straddling for $80 and then folding to like my raise for 300 and stuff like, cause they weren't deep enough, but it was, there's just so much, even though I was doing it all the time, there's just so much dead money. And I, I should have stayed but then you also have to think of the emotional part of it that I just couldn't handle players talking to me like that anymore. And I wasn't strong enough in the moment to be able to just keep dealing with it. And then I went back to my room and then someone's like, I was explaining it to them the next day and they're like, well, yeah, it's because you're a girl. And that had never gone through my head. That thought. Yeah. So you went back to your room, you cried. Uh, Like, I don't even look at it as strength, right? Like you, you should have left, 
regardless of how good the game is. Cause fuck those people. Like it's, it's people like that, that make poker worse, that make the game small, that make it to where folks don't want to play on a regular basis. Yeah. And yeah, it's, but uh, they also won by me leaving. Like that's what they wanted. Right. It's true. They did. They did win. Um, there is a weird psychological thing. I don't know. If, I don't know what it is about going all in over and over, but at the commerce, me and a bunch of guys got drunk one night and <laughs> decided to go play one, two. And I think commerce is like a $60 buy-in something like that. They're one, two in their one, two section. It's all $1 chips too. It's like a ton of chips and like eight of us went over there, got our own table and there was one seat open and we're just shoving every hand just with our drinks. We're just shoving. And the one player who was playing against us went to the floor and complained and they made us stop. Like in an actual casino, they made us. I think he just moved tables. A, he should feel like this is the best table ever. But if it really bothered him, why didn't he just change tables? There's got to be other tables. It like offended his sensibilities as a poker player. It was like, I don't know why he didn't. They wouldn't even give us our own table, like just a private table for us to play at. Um, They literally broke up the game and made us stop doing it, which I thought was really dumb. Um, from just a number of angles but there is this weird psychological element like when you're just ripping at every hand that just pisses people off i don't know i don't know what it is and in tournaments it makes so much more sense because like there's antis and stuff but in the cash game like why are you getting that upset i mean we in my game we did have tons of blinds so you were but you guys all volunteered to do this right you agreed to do it so play the game that you have constructed um stop being little babies uh, sorry, sorry, had to go through that. It's sucky, but again, navigating the the poker world, I think as a female, these things happen. As a male, I will say these things happen too. People have many people have talked shit to me over the years, um, and I actually think you, people are less likely to stand up for you than they are for me when people are talking that way to you because they know you. I think it's more like, oh, they know you can handle it. They're like, oh, she's a fragile girl, which might not be the that feminist of a thing to say but it's about it's it's about perspective and perception but yeah nobody's ever (laughs) i've never had anybody stand up stand up for me no never but i'm typically pretty laid back and like whatever i think the last time that i i got severely berated it, it only happens so it only happens typically when you're playing smaller stakes in my experience when you play bigger stakes it's way less likely to happen yeah, for sure. It's less and likely, but it does happen. It does happen occasionally, but at smaller stakes, it happens a ton. And I, I, I got berated multiple times at a home game that I was playing in because I was going to, <laughs> basically I was playing in it for fun and to see a girl um, who would go on to become my wife and just having a good time, not really taking it seriously, got berated multiple times. I I just laughed because it was such a funny situation another time that i played really small i got accused of cheating in a home game which is the only time i've ever been accused of cheating ever and it was like a 30 dollar friends only type of tournament where i was like just logging off playing 1k and l online moved to this 30 dollar tournament that i could genuinely care less about 
in the like there's nothing i could care less about than winning this silly tournament um and that's the time i get accused of collusion with a friend which was odd see that's something i think as a female i get accused of a ton when i was starting out i remember everyone telling me that that guy was my boyfriend and stuff like everyone at the table was my boyfriend i was always colluding with them whenever i went upon i was somehow colluding with them but i just got accused of cheating like four months ago and the guy tried to get me kicked out of the casino and again like it was uh, on board a cruise ship and we were playing two five and it was open for 30 call 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 i raise i don't remember how much guy calls one of the one of the limper ships and i like reship with ace jack off pretty standard right they were all expecting me to have like aces or kings. So then he thought that I was cheating. Um, so yeah, he called security on me. Like the next day he, uh, he saw me playing and he's like, I'm not playing if she's there because she's cheating. She told the, he told the whole table that I was cheating. And that, that's what's frustrating. Like, I don't even know if they believe the, him, but just having that thought enter their mind bothered me. Yeah. And then I remembered, okay, this is, he's getting to me like this shouldn't it shouldn't be getting to me like obviously i'm not cheating but he then he came and played the next night he was so upset the casino didn't kick me out <laughs> well well like we have strong video evidence of apostle doing his thing and nothing happened to him so <laughs> yeah that's true good luck you can always use that as an excuse in the future good luck um let's move to the lightning round real quick if you could gift all poker players one book to read what would it be one of my favorite books I ever read on poker isn't necessarily like a, it's not a strategy book, but I enjoyed reading it and I think about it all the time and it relates to a lot of the things we talked about. It's Dirty Poker and it's about the way people cheat in poker. And I actually learned to identify, it actually did make me a lot of money because there's a story in the book about using marking your cards to, um, to show your, whoever you're colluding with. And I caught people doing like that exact strategy. Like they hadn't even altered the strategy at all. They used the one exactly from the book. (laughs) Like this means aces, this means kings, this means queens, where they put their, they used the exact one. Like they didn't alter it at all. So it was this couple. So then that was the ethical dilemma then was now that I know exactly what each of these players have, what do I do with that information? Yeah. What do you do? What would you do? I know what I did. (laughs) (laughs) I would tell on them i would call the floor and tell them because you can make a ton of money if you know what they're doing and countering it however people are going to get caught in the crossfire that don't know and i think that that's bad just in general so i would tell the floor so i didn't tell the floor but i told other players okay and we eventually like eventually they did get kicked out because I wasn't there all the time and it was my home casino so I started to tell people gradually like and I and they did not do well (laughs) um so I feel like that was almost better because they no longer had the bankroll to play poker they couldn't just move on but I I asked Twitter and I know a lot of them were like oh that was really unethical of you (laughs) to to not call for my ethics are wherever i don't even know where they're at right now like when it comes to poker in this like doggy dog world like the jungle man thing i just don't care um it is what it is and 
if we want to do better, let's create a better system that is fair, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I think like, like whatever, you know, you just do the best you can in the moment. You told the jungle people man thing broke. The jungle man thing does come to what we were kind of talking about early about making people enjoy playing poker and in high stakes poker, because there's so few people that actually contribute to that, like that people can get money off of. Uh, it's so important that we treat them so well, not just to be nice humans, but to keep the game going. So when you upset someone like Bill Perkins, who's done a lot for the game, it's disappointing. But I totally understand that it's something ghosting. Like I've definitely helped friends on while they're playing online, and that's technically illegal, right? Sure. It's technically ghosting, right? Like yeah. that's just, I don't know. Do I think it was right? No. Do I care? No. <laughs> There's so do you much. Care that, do you care that Bill was offended though? I think that this is expected. Like, I, I don't, this is the expected reaction from, from Bill to be upset. Like, because he was in his mind victimized. So like, yeah, if, I, I think it's fine that he's upset. I think it was a stretch to say it's like worse than, Apostle or made Apostle look like a church service. I think that was a little too emotional Mm -hmm. and too much hyperbole. But yeah, I mean, it's just that the goalposts just keep getting moved back and moved back. And it's the world we have to navigate. And I guarantee you that's not the first time Bill Perkins has been ghosted on a poker site. Maybe it's the first time he realizes Mm -hmm. or has proof that it happened. I know I have been ghosted. I'm sure many, many times it's just, it's the world based on no regulation and there's no incentive not to cheat. Like what is the incentive to not cheat in these situations? Well, the incentive is you ruin your reputation as a poker player. Well, who gives a shit, right? Like who cares? We have to raise people that do care about that then. Like that's the problem, right? I think you. I, I think the the solution is to punish them in some way that only comes through regulation, and that's criminal offense, um, giving them a massive fine to disincentivize that type of behavior. Because it doesn't just happen at Bill Perkins stakes; it happens all the way down, you know, through mid stakes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's a it's a really hard thing to fix when you're talking about online poker near impossible to completely eliminate the possibility of cheating. So like right. all you can do is punish them as hard as you possibly can. So what do you think about this world series of poker bracelet events now when you're talking about how easy it is to cheat and ghost? I don't think anything, you know, I, so by trade, I'm a, I'm a cash game player, so I haven't put much thought into it. It's just, it is what it is, you know, and you hope that most players are abiding by the rules and are doing, you know, playing with integrity. You, you hope that. I, I think that the folks that are actively doing something like that are outliers, right? I think, I think Jungle Man having the opportunity to play in an open poker tournament is different than not having the opportunity to play in a game filled with a bunch of rich whales. So, like, I think behavior is going to change 
in that case. But like, it's on GG Poker to create a system where it makes it much harder for folks to cheat. And good luck. Yeah. I just don't don't understand how they could ever do that. Like I saw today people are saying, oh, it has to be real names. Like that, I don't see how that helps. You have to have a lot of things in place. Number one, you probably need a video camera. Um, yeah. You need to see the person. You need to have intermittent screenshots of what they're doing. Like um, on some softwares like, uh, like Upwork, for instance, when you hire a contractor, like an online freelancer to get something done and they're working hourly, the software will take a screenshot intermittently so that they can't just be on the clock like on YouTube, right? It's their system of protection there. So you need something like that. Yeah, real names can't hurt, but even all of those things, you, you could get around them if you were <laughs> if you were stubborn and wanted to, but mm-hmm. like you just need to make it harder for people to get around them to where it's too much work um, and the downside is just too large. If people just believed it was wrong, <laughs> rather than us having to punish them, if people just understood that this is the rules, you shouldn't break them, it'd be a lot easier. Jillian, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> like this is, of course, this would be ideal, but the reality is it, that it, it's just not happening. And you know, we have to do something as far as policing it better, right? I think. Ideally, yeah, everybody would be like, yeah, this is cool. I'm not cheating. I'm playing. I'm doing my best. But I mean, these are human beings, right? That are willing to do shady things if it means that they can win. Mm -hmm. And like you say, there's not much of a downside, like maybe your reputation. But people forget about that pretty quickly, especially ghosting. Like you say, you don't care. Like if you're, that's something that people really do forgive in the poker community very quickly. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody out there that hasn't had a friend over and you're playing and like the friend will give feedback that that affects a decision in the moment. Like this has happened to me. It's I'm sure it's happened to almost everybody. Um, It's a hard thing to police. It's a hard thing to crack down on. So since COVID, a lot of the live players in my area have been playing on these apps, right? And they're like, oh, it's just, it, it's the same. Like we're, cause it's the real names and everything. And we are just playing with each other. And I'm like, no, this is like way worse. I'd rather play strangers because now you guys literally know each other. Like one, there was a picture of a husband and wife sitting next to each other. I mean, in live environment, that's totally cool. But you're at home. Obviously you're going to say, oh, what did you have last hand? And now you already have more information than I do. Exactly. Exactly. It's, I mean, it's either one of two ways you create accountability through punishments or people are just cool and they don't do it. And (laughs) (laughs) human beings by nature, just at a hundred percent frequency, just aren't cool and aren't going to comply. um, Unfortunately. Can I ask you, you said that you wouldn't want your daughters to necessarily play poker. If you had sons, do you think it would be different? Yeah. Why is that? I'm just trying to figure out like what, I don't really understand that reasoning. I know my parents are always worried about me like getting murdered or something, getting kidnapped for money, which I guess is a little easier to do because I'm littler, but like what other reasons would there be? Just the, just the way that I've seen poker players treat women in general is not good. If I have regrets 
in my poker career, which I guess everybody has regrets, it would be not standing up for enough women when they were being picked on, talked down to, put in uncomfortable situations. I've just seen it so, so, so many times that as a father, it kind of boils my blood for my daughters to be put in that type of situation. And really that's, that's really it. Plus, I mean, poker is a hard life. You know, it's, yeah. it's not always sunshine and roses. It's hard anyway. But it's hard for both sexes. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard for both sexes to navigate, but maybe you're right because I only have a sample size of one, right? My sample size includes being a white male in poker mm-hmm. and playing against females and then seeing how they get treated on a regular basis. Maybe I have a negativity bias and the times that they've been mistreated stand out to me more than the times that they weren't. So, you know, you could probably help me out as far as that goes with your perspective. So I was recently in a documentary about, it's called Poker Queens. The most interesting part of the entire documentary is Sandra dresses as a male to play poker because she really felt that she was treated worse as a female. Like I actually think it's a huge advantage, but she felt like the second like, there's clips of her walking into the casino as a female and the guys are immediately hitting on her. And then she walks in as a man and no, and she's like, it's, you get to be invisible. And I guess I'm the opposite of invisible. Like people always remember playing against me. The second I walk into the casino, people come up to me and tell me hands they've played against me, which I don't even remember, but they, I'm the opposite of invisible, but I think there's advantages to both, but I've never got to be invisible. So I don't know what that's like. Yeah, it's weird because I wasn't really invisible either early in my career because I was younger than everyone. I was always the youngest player at the table, like forever. So I was just like the kid or whoever. So I was not really invisible either. But yeah, I mean, it's a lot of attention. And especially if you're an attractive female, it's it's a lot of that attention will be unwanted, I would think. But I don't know. But I think, yeah, I think there, I was in, I went into the casino like last, right before COVID was my last time there. And I walked in and this guy, I heard this guy say, that's Jillian Epp. Oh, that's Jillian Epp. And he runs up to me and he's like, you folded a full house to me when I had a bigger boat. And he's like, and he's like, um, and and I'm a crazy Indian. (laughs) That that was his words. He's like, I just thought that was the craziest play ever. Now, I don't remember this hand at all. And apparently it was like eight years ago. Wow. But that stands out to him. I don't remember this person at all, but that stands out to him. Now, I think that that's advantageous that he now has this image of me, especially because my games changed so much in that time. And he remembers me, but I also think maybe it's a disadvantage because he's probably less likely to get involved in hands against me because he thinks that I'm good now. Yeah. I mean, again, I I forgot to say that the same thing has happened to me too, where I go to a casino, go to a card room, somebody tells me about a hand they played or they're like, Hey Brad, how's it going? And I'm like, just completely blank on my brain. So for whatever reason, like, I think it was because I was younger, they remembered me and remembered playing against me and the hands being involved, but I'm fairly chatty and personable too, which I think doesn't, doesn't help me not stand out (laughs) when you're, you're interacting with folks. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, that's not 
legalization in the U.S., what would it be? I think people's attitude should make everyone friendly and nice at the table. Yes, that would be nice. <laughs> that would be and a great step. Let's add honest to it, since this has been such a topic in today. Let's add honesty, like decent human beings. Right. Just be cool. Just yeah. be a decent human being. If you could erect a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does it say? Um, <laughs> what could your money be used for for the better? <laughs> like Rather than giving it to the casino... I play in Hammond once in a while, and have you seen on the way there, it has the death toll. That's, so that's exactly what came to mind. It has how many people have died on that highway on the way there. No, I've and never been. When, to, really? Never been. And then when you get there, so then people like have, have over and under constantly on what the day is going to be. But um, yeah, like I feel like so much money is just wasted to the casino versus should you be playing poker right now? Like, should, should you be playing your child supporter? Is there something that you should be <laughs> rather than giving this money? What are you doing with your life? <laughs> yeah. Cause we've played in those games. We've all felt guilty, like taking people's I, at California at um, commerce a guy sat down with, like a really weird number, like 68,000. And someone said, oh, where'd you get that? Like he wasn't, doesn't normally play that stakes. And then he's like, is it your tuition? He's like, yeah, actually it is. He grinded all night and he lost it. And to this day, I feel bad about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I've, I've been there as well, where like in a home game, for me, it was busting a guy that in a really big pot that I know has like a family and he's like a UPS driver. And I didn't know if he could, I I just didn't know, you know, I I know that he's going to feel horrible and I don't want to be the person that makes him feel that way. And that's, you know, something that you have to come to terms with in this industry. You are Mm -hmm. beating people out of money and sometimes people make bad decisions and play above their means and really hurt themselves and their family with the decisions that they make. And it does not feel good to benefit from those bad decisions. What's the best answer you've heard from that one? I want to know. I want to know what it should say. The billboard should say. I don't know. Now that you put me on the spot, I don't know the best answer. Um, God, it'll come to me like a few hours after this. I think like in general, my thing is just be cool to your fellow man. Treat people with respect and um, enjoy the journey. That's what I... Which honestly, poker players are pretty good at doing. Like my dad doesn't understand it at all. So he's always like, well, how come people don't mind you taking their money? Like he, he doesn't get that. Like to him, he hates losing. So he... I, he like poker wouldn't work for him. So he just can't comprehend that you can take someone's money and then they still want to play with you. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a game that they enjoy, right? They like, understand that. If, if you go to the used car lot to buy a car and you know, you buy a car, like somebody benefits from this transaction. Like somebody's always benefiting from all the transactions. You and got all a the car out of do. it. You did get a car, right. 
I just took your money for no reason. You got nothing out of it. That's true. You got the experience, right? Yeah, that's what we have to tell. It's like you have, we say there's like a fee, like a, your tuition when you're learning. <laughs> it's your tuition that you're just paying. But it's always a fair opportunity if you're mm-hmm. not cheating. It's a meritocracy. And mm-hmm. there's a difference in actually spending $500 and losing $500 at poker to me. The difference is you had an opportunity to win money. And so, yeah, it's uh, every poker player that I've had on this show, by the way, has all the same existential crisis thoughts that we do. Poker players, I think, are inherently empathetic in nature, which causes them to ask these tough questions and rationalize it however they do. But it's a tough thing. It's not, I don't have any pride in hurting folks. Mm-hmm. in those situations. I remember someone explaining it, and I really like this, as it's a hobby that you could possibly make money. So like golf, you spend a lot of money on if that, that's your hobby. Sure. Then you yeah. have no opportunity, I guess, if you gamble. But if you have no opportunity to get that money back, like you paid your fees for this. So that's how I like to look at it. That's a much better analogy than the car is golf <laughs> or any hobby that costs you a ton of money yeah. where you're just doing it because you love playing the game. Right. That's, that's the reason you're doing it because you love playing the game. What's your current big goal in poker? Any big goals? Like with COVID things have, COVID was tough on me. And part of it is just the reason I play poker is to travel. Like it, it allowed me traveling is my passion. Poker was a way of supporting traveling. I went from being a backpacker and now like I get upset if someone, if I don't have a business class seat, like, so it's changed, but it has allowed me to do that. And when COVID struck, I could no longer travel and it just got me to the spot. Like, what do I do now? Cause you asked me about online poker, online poker is not my thing. I don't enjoy it. I, all I can play for a little while, but I get bored way quicker online than I do live. And so now I have to reevaluate that. Like, if I can't travel, what do I do? Because that was the reason I played poker. Yes, yeah, tough. What are you leaning towards? Um, I mean, you can always try to get better at poker, but I wonder if there's something else. I always thought that, I never thought that poker would make my career. So then even when it was, I always thought it would lead to something. And I'm still waiting for that. But now I've been playing for so long, I feel like I'm not good at anything else. And it's something that I am very good at. And uh, my, I would love to learn other games. But the issue with that is I know how much work No Limit Hold'em is for, was for me. Like how much hours of studying and like you still have to study, right? Um, I've put into it. So that gets overwhelming. So, but then when like new game, I don't like any fixed limit games because I love no limit that you can vary your bet sizing. Like that just adds such an interesting element. So anything that has a fixed limit isn't my game, but maybe there I should start looking into some other mixed games that have, that are interesting. I played Big O for the first time the other, like a few months ago. Yeah. The the PLO, the Big O, those, those kind of games could be, could be fun. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. It's a poker player's dilemma. We develop a specific skill set that we are used to being compensated for at more than any (laughs) other enterprise is willing to pay us for Mm -hmm. said skill set. So 
we get stuck in poker and it's very difficult to get out. And yeah. And the other reason that I play cash and live is because I can make my own schedule. Like tournaments, you even have to get up at a certain time. Cash, I don't have to do any of that. So I've had so much freedom for so many years. Very hard to figure out how that will, uh, how I'll be happy with any job. But I like doing like the odd thing. But then as soon as there's a schedule, I'm like, oh, I'm past it. I saw someone post about the Poker Stars Championship that I was planning on going to, but now won't be until 2021. And I actually replied, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I still like, I'll still like poker by then. Cause it seems like so long from now. Yeah. It's, I'm the same by the, like, so cash game player, I love setting my own schedule. I love being able to pick up my chips and leave whenever yeah. I want to. I'm very spoiled by the autonomy of cash exactly. game poker so much so that I like almost never play tournaments. Like it, I've probably played five tournaments in the last 10 years. So spoiled is the right word. Like if someone is being mean to you or something at a tournament table, you can't just get up and leave. You have to sit there and take that and listen to that. And then it's 12 hours too, which I never play that long of sessions in cash anymore. Yeah. And speaking of like sleeping like a normal human being, not only is it 12 hours, it's last tournament I played, I made it to day two, unfortunately. And it ended at like, midnight and there's so much adrenaline when it ends that I can't just go to sleep and I was hungry because I hadn't eaten a ton so yeah. it's like oh I find myself in this stupid cafeteria buying Krispy Kreme donuts at 12 30 trying to figure out like how do I go to I'm already two and a half hours past my normal bedtime it's you know 12 30 1 a.m I'm eating donuts and the next day of course I'm just worthless as a human so yeah I haven't ever loved tournaments. <laughs> uh, love the, love I, the cash I, when game. I play, when I play them, the last tournament I played was not this year, but last year's Aussie Millions. Well, the last, yeah, main event. And I remember in my head, because I made it deep, and then in, but then I didn't cash. But in my head, I was like, if I win this, I promise I'll never play a tournament again. I promise I won't make you play a tournament again. That's all that was going in. It wasn't this, oh, I'm loving every moment. Like, I know poker players that say that. They're like, you know, it sucks when you're short stack, but as soon as you have deep, it's just so much fun. But that doesn't go through my head. All that's going through my head is like, let's win this and get it over with. Has it ever been about the prestige for you? Has poker ever been about the prestige at all? In the beginning, definitely not. Like, I didn't ever even play tournaments. I remember playing 1020 at Bellagio while the main event was going on. And just, it was almost making me happy every time someone busted and returned to our game. I was just like, yeah, I didn't waste 10K. And then the turning moment was Jesse Sylvia coming second in the World Series main event because he was part of that 1020 game. And then suddenly I was like, well, if Jesse can do it, I can do it. <laughs> and like, he suddenly, he suddenly became known and stuff. Cause that was like the perfect timing. And then I felt like, well, I want that, but that was a mistake. I regret that. Like <laughs> I regret him coming in second. Cause then I felt like I had to play it every single year and I've never cashed. So I wasted <laughs> all that money. It's never been about the prestige for me either. Although, as it relates to like podcasting ventures and audience building, I mm -hmm. do wish I had more prestige in the poker space through tournament results because cash. That's games, what people see. Uh, that's what people see, right? That's yeah. what people 
recognize and they can say, oh, well, you have $10 million in tournament winnings over your career. Whereas, you know, if I don't subtract the losses, like God only knows how much winnings we have in cash games, right? It's like some astronomical number um, just over time that, you know, nobody, nobody sees. So I I do only in the podcasting regret (laughs) audience building. Do I miss out on the prestige? Otherwise, I'm cool, man. I don't need the prestige. I play poker to make money and make a living and provide. And that's what I've done. And I'm happy. But in the old days, it was the cash game. I feel like that had the prestige. Like um, poker after, not uh, what was the high stakes poker? That was my favorite show on television. And all those guys like Tom Dwan and Lex. And yeah, it was just, they were the ones that I feel like were the most famous. Well, Ivy, Ivy. Well, Ivy's, he's just always, he's always the goat, but in my eyes, those are the people that I've aspired to be in my poker career. Where the Doyles and the Patrick yeah, Antoniuses and the, the cash game crushers that are playing mm-hmm. super high stakes that are at the top of the food chain. They're the apex predator in the poker world. The tournament players I've never viewed as the apex predators. Um, it's like, cool, you know, you, you win a WSOP main event or whatever it is, but it's a single tournament. And mm. there's a lot of run good behind that. When you put together a 20-year career playing cash games at the highest stakes in the world, that to me is like number one. That person's on the Mount Rushmore of poker in my eyes. Yeah, and I actually have a ton of respect for those people that didn't chase those tournaments for the prestige or whatever, because that is the reason you play tournaments, really. Like, that's the reason people play tournaments is for the prestige, because most of them could be successful at cash, and that would be... I I don't know. I feel like that's easier based on the days, but there's... trying to think there's one guy that I used to play with and he was just like the best cash game player and I remember asking at one point I asked Jesse Sylvia I'm like hey do you know his last name and Jesse's like there's no way to know he's just the best player but there's no way to know because he doesn't play tournaments and I I I just idolized him so much because he just crushed any stakes game and no one really knows who he is he's just kind of mysterious and that's just so cool yeah and this happens at a lot of high stakes games where the crushers you know the great whites of the population in the pool, most people don't know who they are because they don't play tournaments. But if you win a tournament and then you try to play big cash games, you'll figure out who they are and uh, (laughs) you'll find out real quick where you fit in the, in the poker food chain. Jillian, uh, I've loved this conversation. I know you don't have very much to do right now. So maybe in the next six months or so you can come on, we can do a round two. Sounds good. I want to thank you and like for creating doing this content because I didn't appreciate it as much before I tried doing <laughs> some content and then I realized how much work it is and I hope I saw that you tweeted out that you're going to start ads maybe at, or a Patreon and yeah. I think you should definitely do a Patreon because people need to support you that's how you, we really do thank you for this content and I need you to be rewarded for that Thank you, Jillian. I, that, that, that does mean a lot. And until you're involved, like with the process itself, right? You maybe think that somebody just rolls out of bed and 
a piece of content just drops into yeah. your lap like manna from heaven. But there's a lot of energy that goes into making these shows. And I, do, I, I love doing them. I, I think this is first and foremost. I do love doing them, but I do have the pragmatic side of my brain that says I'm investing a lot of time. How do I make this a sustainable venture? So yeah. I, I really appreciate that feedback. That's, that's really great. Um, I'm trying to get sponsorship. This is, I'm trying to, that would be the lowest hanging fruit, the easiest thing for me to do. Because again, like somebody needs to sponsor the fucking show. Why do we need to rely on the poker community to support me, right? Like let's bring in a big entity with money. Maybe, but it could also be PBS style where the viewers support it. That's and true. Then- then you don't have to be jaded at all in what you say. You can be yourself the whole time. Yeah, Jillian. I'm a poker player. Poker players typically are really bad at business <laughs> and marketing and especially so a, cash Apple, game. Right? a cash game player too, where my goal is never prestige. My, my goal has just been to be the best version of myself. So it's tough. Pretty good but goal. Thank you for your time and your energy. Last question. Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Yeah, so Twitter, at Jillep, G-I-L-L-E-P-P. I don't do much on Instagram, but it's the same handle. And once in a while on Twitch, at Hustler Honey, with H-U-N, no, <laughs> H-U-S-T-L-E-R-H-U-N-N-Y. Awesome. And when you tune into the Twitch channel, just know she's not having a very good time. <laughs> she's wishing... You make it fun. The audience makes it fun. <laughs> she's wishing she was playing live poker. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.